welcome to this podcast series on neo-charismatic leadership with author, leadership expert and coach, Dr. Gada Angawi and executive leader, Martin Headley, where they will both explore the recently published book, Neo-Charismatic Leadership and the coaching topics it covers. Hi, Happy New Year 2021 and welcome to the new Charismatic Leadership Podcast where we are going to interview a unique new Charismatic Leader guest today. Welcome Jeff Cousins to our episode and we are very happy to have you here uh, shining the light on your uh, leadership roles. Great. Well, Happy New Year to everybody uh, again from me, from Martin Headley. Uh, welcome, Jeff. I'd like to give an introduction to guest speaker, a phenomenal leader, in my opinion. Uh, Jeff started his career in finance and has worked in key leadership and business transforming roles for global brands such as Jaguar Land Rover. Jeff's very passionate about profitable growth and has a compelling combination of global corporate experience and work with small to medium enterprises and mid-sized businesses, particularly around brand strategy, product innovation, market growth and finance. Now, Jeff is currently chairman of GMP Group Holdings. That's a world-class quality services management company, works with uh, blue chip clients in the automotive and aerospace sectors. He's also the chairman of the Cure Leukemia Charity and is a visiting professor of global governance at the University of South Wales. So, Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Martin. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, welcome, Jeff. I would really love to start this conversation by uh, the usual, which is what made you into who you are? Uh, usually behind every leader, there is a sequence of past circumstances. Uh, I would love to hear the story behind your success and who stood behind you. I've got a very interesting story. It could take uh, quite a long time if I went through it in detail. <laughs> it is quite interesting when you reflect on where you've come from, the influences and experiences you've had and how you dealt with them uh, as to where you end up or where I've ended up now. And I once uh, was called by uh, uh, the Man of Steel by an automotive journalist. And it was, unfortunately, nothing to do with any superpowers. It was because uh, my first job was in a steelworks in South Wales. And for some reason, this journalist either couldn't understand or he was intrigued of how I could have gone from a job in the steelworks in South Wales to become MD of a big brand like Jaguar in its home market. Mm. And as we talked more, he, he was very much that you have learned so much and experienced so much, you should tell people about it. And that's, I started to do a few speeches and, and so on. Um, I would think for all careers, there's a number of points in your career where something happens that gets you to the next level or it changes your view on life. My first job was in the steelworks in South Wales. It was a good grounding by real working class people that had some great ethics. They looked after each other. They, you know, they watched each other's back, but you had to do your job. Because if you weren't doing your job, you were letting someone down. 
and they wouldn't accept that within their gang, for want of a better word. So you learned that you needed to work hard, you needed to, <laughs> to contribute to the team, and if you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, they weren't shy in coming forward and telling you, look, you're not doing this. The other bit I loved about it that has uh, shaped me in quite a lot of ways is their sense of humour. And I was a graduate from Warwick University with a degree in economics and international studies, working with steel men and women who'd been there their whole life. So as you can imagine, I was the butt of quite a few jokes, but they had respect for me and I was one of their gang because I contributed to it. And I think those uh, qualities or those learnings have stayed with me, I think, for the rest of my life. That is that you treat people in the right way. You get more done if you're a team, but you've got to make sure that everyone in that team absolutely contributes to what the goal is. And uh, I think everybody, to a certain extent, is shaped by their first one or two experiences uh, after their childhood. Uh, and I think then it's how you deal with that. Is there anything in your upbringing made you who you are right now that brought you to this point in time? I had a father uh, who couldn't go to university because his father had been uh, shot and crippled in the war. He had to go out to work. So he had uh, great hopes for me. He wanted me to, to do exceptionally well. He was very proud of me, but he never really told me I'd done anything well. So I think I was trying to do something well to just get that, 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 that praise. Some of my qualities used to, he was very proud of. I think there were a couple of traits that did irritate him a little bit. As a, a humorous story, at the age of 10, I had three or four mates around and I was, uh, my dad come out and we were building a den. Uh, I was sat there and, you know, these three kids were building a den and my dad said, well, why aren't you helping them? I said, I'm the manager. I'm working out the best way this thing should be done. And then get people who better me to do it. Now, I thought that was very smart of me. He thought, you're lazy, get on and do it. Um, but it's interesting, uh, as I was going through Warwick University, my professor said, he said, part of your problem, he said, is that you're too good at working out just about how much work needs to be done to complete what you need to complete as opposed to just do a lot of work and you'll get there. So he said, somehow you've got to use the, that smart way and think of it as efficiency. <laughs> uh, but to do that, you can't do that yourself. You've got to do it with a team of people. And I think those two started to shape me. I had no, I had no a career plan whatsoever. And interestingly, I, I come up back up to around the Warwick University area and joined the, uh, the car industry. I was a great sportsman, but then I I looked at the senior manager above me, and I thought, I could do that job. What does it take to do that job? Well, you've got to go and become an accountant. If you want to be a senior manager in Jaguar, you need to be an accountant. So I went and became an accountant, and then the job above me, I thought, I can do that job. What do I need to do that job? And it's very interesting. I think there's three or four things that happen in a person's career 
that you don't expect that really changes your uh, way you're going to move forward. And for me, I'll very quickly say there was three things. One is uh, I was working in manufacturing finance and a job come up to be a, a senior manager. Four of us went in for it. I didn't get it. Someone else got it. Then another job come up and three of us went in for it. I didn't get it. Another job come up about six months later, two of us in it. I didn't get it. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm finished with Jaguar. They don't, you know, uh, I'm going to leave. And then I got a call from uh, the finance controller of the sales and marketing area, the commercial area. He said, come and work for me. Get out of the manufacturing finance. Come into commercial finance. You'll travel and we will sponsor you to do your MBA at Warwick University. I went from, well, do I leave now because I'm not valued? Or, but then part of me thought, well, two of those certainly were better at manufacturing finance than me, but one of them wasn't a qualified accountant. And I've been told you need to be qualified to get to that level. So what does that say about the company? And, and then I thought, oh, let's just, you know, if nothing else, I'll have 12 months and I'll be able to visit Paris and Rome and Vienna and all these places doing price negotiations. So I went and joined the, that uh, department, and that was the best thing I, I ever did. From what was going to be something uh, I was going to leave, it became the best thing I ever did and shaped me incredibly differently for the future. That, that's interesting, um, Jeff. What I really like about the stories here, um, th there are two essentials for leadership, which you've covered beautifully. Um, the first one, of course, is that you know, if you don't understand the daily lives of the individuals that you are leading, then you're really not going to get very far. You, when you talk about the, the working class men and women that, that, that sort of founded your understanding of the workplace, um, <clears throat> I think that that's e extremely important. And while it's quite possible these days for people to shoot through careers with great university degrees and things like that, you cannot ultimately be successful without bringing the, um, uh, the frontline workers with you. Uh, and then secondly, uh, also in terms of, uh, knowing is knowing yourself, uh, your, your story there about, um, you know, where you want to go and what opportunities are put in front of you and what opportunities you think you want to have may actually not be the obvious ones. And it really is important for a leader to, to give some serious concern, uh, serious thought to, um, you know, am I just simply following a path because everybody follows that path or am I really following a path that says, hey, this is me, right? Yeah. And, and I like two things as well. <laughs> the story where you were 10 years old and, um, you said, well, I'm the manager of, of that, of that little team that was building the den, but you had a way of doing it that was smart and that brought you the results you needed. And this is what we tell people. It's not about how much work you put is how smart you do that work. I just wanted to, uh, say, you know, this, this sort of brings us to the, uh, I think nicely brings us to the classic question is how do you, Jeff, define leadership? Um, you know, what, what is your personal perspective on what it is? I think I have, I have been on every executive leadership course I think Ford ever, ever had, including a week at Duke University. There's so many different theories on what's a good leader, what's not, and what leadership. One of the first things I've ever thought about 
how I could say to myself that I have been a good leader is the ability to create a high-performing team. Now, I could say, yes, I'm a great leader because when I was MD of of Jaguar, uh, our market share went up significantly, our sales went up significantly, the average age of our drivers come down, we made huge improvement in profit, but I'm also conscious it's me saying I did that, I didn't that, and I didn't do that. I did it with a team. So for me, if you create a high-performing team and you've got the right level of objectives and strategy and you communicate that to the team and that everyone in that team knows what their job is and how they contribute to the goals, I think you will naturally reach your goals of course, as long as you still look at the external environments, the risk and opportunities. But I think for me, there's leadership, there's the internal high-performing team, and there's the external risk and strategy management looking at the outside and seeing what could impact your ability to reach your goals. What you've just described, we talk about high-performing teams and the six conditions, which is creating a common goal, having the right communication, uh, having the right people, uh, and also having um, the need for that team. And the other thing, the ability to sense the environment, uh, the assessment, the high sensitivity to the environmental factors, uh, the external and, and the internal. You focused on the external, which is uh, important for that team uh, to be able to function. Yes, I, I think the um, the emphasis on the team here is extremely important because, you know, some of our listeners um, are not in big organizations. In fact, some of them are in rather rural and remote parts of the world um, where they don't have anything like the uh, facilities and the infrastructure that, that we're fortunate enough to have. Um, but, you know, if they want, if these individuals want to make a change where they live, um, the, the same thing is true. They're going to have to build a group around them that is, is willing to follow that, that, um, you know, has, has been communicated to well and believes in the vision and then goes and gets others to help follow along in that vision. Uh, this is what makes change happen. And, um, it's, it's, uh, very, very much, required because uh, there, are, there are so many problems around the world. Uh, we, we can't do this all with just huge organizations. So um, I, I love that idea of the uh, team. Yeah, for me, Martin, there's two or three things. A team can be two people, four people, or 2,000 2, people. And I think the other way that I've managed to be successful is that I've had relationships and partnerships with individuals and other companies outside of my team because they, frankly, could help me get to market quicker. They could help me get to the decision makers I needed to get to quicker. But I also knew I had to do that for them at certain times. So for me, it is you build your own uh, high-performance team, but you want to build an ecosystem of influencers and people that are supporting you. As we went through the big transformation at Jaguar, I talked a lot about the Jaguar family, whether it was internal people, a dealer, a customer, a sports star that was doing some sponsorship for us. It was becoming part of a bigger Jaguar family. And I think you can do that. You don't need that many people to do to do a good thing if you're on the same page. 
Yeah. Me and Martin, we do leadership coaching groups outside your work context. And whatever you have just said about the importance of surrounding yourself with people from different perspectives, from different sectors, feeds into your leadership expertise in your own context. Yes. And it's certainly true that, you know, a, a great leader helps the individuals in the, in the in situ team. Um, build relationships and it connects them mm. with the outside world. So, uh, you know, they, they may actually be internally focused, which may be the right thing for them to, to do. But as long as they feel the leader is connecting them to the right people outside and is communicating to them who that should be, um, that, you know, that's, that's a very comforting feeling for somebody who's in the team. Uh, so, so that's, that's great. Yeah, but the other thing I would say that it all, it all sounds very easy when you say it quick, doesn't it? But it takes a lot of work and it's painful. And there's times you have to say to an individual or to a group of people, uh, look, this is my bus. I'm driving. We are going this way for this reason. You have a very important job on this bus. But if you don't like this bus, then I'll help you get off this bus in a nice way. And I'm sure another bus will be along for you to go and Excellent. work on. Mm -hmm. You have to do that. And like everyone else, I've had to exit people from an organization, which I don't like. Interestingly, one or two of them come back and thank me afterwards because they weren't enjoying their job. They knew they weren't doing a great job and actually found more satisfaction and greater reward from a job that they moved to. So we do all this good stuff. But sometimes you've got to say, look, I am the boss. We're doing it this way. This is the reason why. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, I, I know I'm jumping into growing and uh, developing people, which is the role number 10 in new charismatic leadership, helping people exit. You, you saw something in, in that situation. So how does that help people grow? As a director or a manager or a supervisor, I think you have to decide how much you want to put into your people. I've worked at my time for senior managers and directors that will just employ yes people. It makes them feel good, and that's what they do. If I have good people working for me, then my department or my strategy or my job will be better because i got better people working for me. It's like it's easy to say I want people, you know, the challenge is the status quo. Now, that's hard for the people to challenge the status quo. It's also hard for me as a leader to take someone saying, you know, you're not doing this right. And some people can't take that. And at times you don't like being told you're not doing things right. So it is focusing on the end goal. And you also work out, uh, you may be in a big office, you may be out on the shop floor, as it were. But when you're, when they're in a team or you're in a team, the rest of the team tends to know the strong points and the weak points of the people they're working with. They tend to know who's slacking and who's not slacking. So I think part of it for me is that you need to interact with your people, firstly and foremost, to understand what's going on, what their issues are. You then look at, well, how much do I really want to develop these people? And it's difficult at times because we're all human beings. And if you're not careful, you have a, a few favorites within the team. They're generally the people you can rely on. I know that person will get that job done. And if you're not careful, they become seen as favorites and the rest of the team starts to think, well, it's okay for them. They're, 
they're just favourites. What about us? So it does take a lot of thought and concentration, and therefore you need to be willing to put in the effort to do a good job on it. Otherwise, don't do it. Otherwise, be the person in the office and it will be what it will be. The other thing I've seen is that, you know, you've seen people have appraisals twice a year. You have the 360-degree process. And then at one company, it was, well, you need some development. Here's a list of training courses. Choose two or three to go on. You know, and they go on basket weaving or something, you know. And guess what? The appraisal the next year says exactly the same. So it's a lot of effort from you as a director, but you also need that similar level of effort from your HR department and from your mainstream directors who may not agree with you. So all I'm saying is that uh, you have to spend the time. It takes a lot of time and you do it properly or you don't do it. I chose to do it properly. Sometimes I would think, oh, I'm spending so much time on this. Why am I doing it? But then I had more people promoted out of my area than any other area in Jaguar worldwide. And I'd have some people say, well, I don't understand you, Jeff. Your, your people are, are leaving. You have turnover, three or four great people a year. And I said, yeah, but I got great people coming in. For me, I got, it's a win-win. I got great people coming in because they see they're going to be developed and they will leave. I also got, uh, if you will call, disciples of mine in other senior positions now that will influence their positions and therefore will be very useful for me when I want something done. So for me, it was win-win. But there was a lot of directors who thought I was a bit mad. And at times I thought it was a bit mad because it takes work. So I suppose I think you do it or you don't. Because if you don't do it properly, the people see through you straight away. And it goes back to the steelworks day. You'll be called yes. out. It's yes, all it's talk and no, no walk, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, absolutely. It becomes a program. It's just another thing. It's just another corporate event going on. It's not really yeah. from the heart, is it? And, and um, people can tell that. Um, you know, I d- certainly I, I've, I've been on both sides of that. Um, you know, I've known when it's not genuine and it's been pointed yeah. at me. Um, but also I, I've, I remember how hard it was, uh, you know, when, when I had a global organization of almost 5,000. Um, you know, you think, oh my God, I, I just can't reach everybody. Well, no, of course you can't reach everybody, but then you have to mm. have your lieutenants able to reach their lieutenants, etc. And you just have to make yeah. that a culturally accepted norm in the organization that, you know, development is important and we're going to take some time to, to look at it. So, uh, it, it reminds me, um, you know, we are, uh, we're, we're talking to people around the world, of course, through this podcast series. Um, and I think you've got some interesting stories, Jeff, about, um, you know, what, how, how your leadership or, or at least how your learning changed perhaps as you started to go around to totally different cultures from what you were used to. Can you uh, expand on that? A little yeah, bit? it's interesting that I, uh, you know, when I said I was, I didn't get promoted in the manufacturing job and therefore I was disillusioned going to leave and then, uh, this director said, well, come into the commercial world. And I went for my, uh, to have a chat. It, it, it was an interview, but, you know, it was a chat really, wasn't it? And I said, well, what's the job? He says, well, the job is you have to agree with the in- independent uh, d- distributors uh, the price of the car each year and what price they're going to sell it for in the market, effectively. And at that time, most of the, the countries in the world, they, the sales companies weren't owned by Jaguar. They were independents. 
And because of the name Jaguar, they tended to be wealthy and they tended uh, to have a lot of lux- luxury brands and powerful people. And he said, well, he says, I suppose he says, we'll start with Europe. You'll have to go to Paris. You'll have to go to Rome. Uh, you have to go to The Hague. You have to go to Vienna. And you have you go there. You have a price negotiation. You agree it. You go out with them at night because they buy the cars from us and you move on the next day. And I thought, well, that's not a bad job, is it? That can't be that difficult. You know, you've got your your business plan, your budget. So you know what the cost of the new car is and what price you want. And it's quite fascinating. Yeah. So I go out to my first one, which was France. So I went to Paris. I remember this, that the guy, unfortunately, has passed away. He was number 12 on the civil list in France. So the top 11 died, he ran France. So he was a powerful person. And he had a, uh, he, he lived on the Champs Elysees and he, he just powerful person. So I went in there and, uh, I said, look, we've got this new car. It's wonderful. It's this, it's that, and so on. And th- this is the price. He lit up a cigar, blew smoke in my face, and said, I can't accept that price. You're, my family would be out on the streets, he says from his office on the Champs-Élysées. How about this price? If I accept that price, I'll be sacked when I go back. And we must have talked for about three hours. And then he said, uh, do you have to catch a flight home tonight? I said, no, I'm all right. I can stay. Uh, I know we've been there for about five or six hours. He said, uh, okay, it's time for dinner. I think your price is right. Minus 10%. I'll sign up for that. We signed up for it and we went for dinner on the Champs-Élysées. Now, it, it, it sounds a funny story. But it started to teach me the art of negotiation. I'm not saying I'm a great negotiator, but you've got to find common ground and you've got to understand where they're coming from and the reasons why they're coming from it. I knew after 12 months in this job, if I had a good rational understanding and could express it of why the price of the car was this, If I was in Germany, Holland, Belgium, Scandinavia, they would say, yes, that's right. I agree that. Yeah, you can, yeah, we tweak around the outsides. I agree that. If I was going to France, Spain, or or Italy, or Portugal, I had to increase the price because it didn't matter what facts I had. They wanted a negotiation and to see that price come down. I didn't realize I was learning. But I was learning because of that. One of how to listen to them and give them time to get their point across, even yeah. thought, even though you thought it was, well, it's pretty daft, waste of time, but okay, I've got to listen to you. And then pitch in a way that is, um, not offensive to them or there's some common ground. And that taught me a lot around, uh, around Europe. Yes. It was a lot of cultures. Yes. Yeah sensitive to the culture itself and then from that it was very interesting again i talked earlier about there's a couple of points to change your career with jaguar they had a a joint venture in japan uh, with a a big finance company it was losing money and the ford board the main ford board had said to the chairman of jaguar uh, either you fix it in the next 12 months or we'll get Ford of Japan to fix it for, for you, which we didn't want. So uh, he got uh, the chairman, Jaguar, got myself and new sales director and said, uh, you may not believe this, guys, but 
I've told the head of Ford that you're our A team on Japan. You're on the flight in two days' time. Didn't know anything about the country. Didn't really I've never been anywhere like that before. And we thought, well, what can we do? The first thing is we sit down and listen. We do our due diligence. We do our homework. And it was one of the strangest things because I remember it's a 12-hour flight from the UK with a nine-hour time difference. And then you went into a, a meeting four or five hours after you landed. And there was, uh, I don't know, there was three of us uh, from the UK and another three from our half of the joint venture. There was about 10 Japanese in the room that included two interpreters, and it was all being recorded. And you thought, I understand more about the European culture because, you know, we go there, it's close. But to go to the Far East was hugely, hugely different. But i got to say, you know, once we got over some translation issues, it, it went well. And I think you work out that you shouldn't be afraid of culture. You've just got to be aware of the culture. And I made some really good friends in Japan. I went 15 times in four years for two weeks at a time. Uh, we did turn the company around. We made people redundant, which was virtually unheard of in Japan at that time. Yeah. We sold off some of the dealerships. But once they realized that we were listening to them and we were doing what we had to do from our perspective and what we thought was right for the long term, it was not easy. Don't get me wrong. It was very, very difficult. But it did work. And you, you realize there's good and bad people everywhere. Uh, you know, the sensible and silly people everywhere. There's the aggressive yeah. negotiator. There's the passive negotiator, you know, and you just, providing your mind is open, you learn. It drives you mad at times. Why can't they understand this? What's wrong with them? This is easy. Uh, but they were undoubtedly thinking yeah. the same about us. So once we got over that, it was yeah. quite fascinating because they would take you out at night. It was almost like next day in the office it was almost like that night didn't exist. It's almost, this is work, and we'll take you out now because we're good hosts. Please understand, anything we say when we're out is nothing to do with what we're going to discuss tomorrow in the office, which is different to the Western way, where a lot that discuss over dinner becomes part of your negotiation. In Japan, it was, at that time, yeah. very much not like that. Fascinating. Yeah. So here you are talking about the prerequisites of uh, new charismatic leadership. You've mentioned self-awareness. You've mentioned empathetic listening and the ability to take in the other person's point of view. One thing I, I am inquisitive about is you, you've mentioned earlier the idea of challenging the status quo. Some of your team, if they weren't challenging the status quo, you were questioning why are they so compliant? Are they yes people? Can you elaborate more on that idea of challenging the status quo? What does it mean for you as a leader? I think it's important to challenge the status quo. And that's because it shows you've got your own independent thought of what should be done. Mm. And also, a lot of it, I was very keenly aware from my jobs earlier in my career. Guess what? The people on the shop floor tends to know more about how to improve something than, than their manager does because they're working with it every day. So I used to say to my people, it's our job is to put forward what we think is best for the company. If you will, we march up the hill and we say to our boss, given what you've asked us to do, this is what we think is the best way to do it. 
this is how we're, it's being done now and this is the, the strong bits and the weak bits and how we should change it. And that's our job to do that. If the person uh, ultimately that's responsible for it says, no, I'm not doing it that way, okay, that's, you know, he or she is the boss and that's down to him. But our job is to walk up the hill and tell them about that. Now, to get your people to do that, they have to be confident that you will protect them or have their back or speak up for them if they do that they get shot down or someone says, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't do that. It can work very much the other way that someone comes up with a great idea, not to listen to whatsoever. They're not supported in a way. So guess what? You won't get any ideas from them again in the future. A lot of organizations I've seen, there's a lot of people that just keeps their heads, you know, uh, you know, below being too visible or make, make, making decisions because of what they've experienced in the past. If I put this in a personal context, I worked for, for a while for a very, very talented American woman out of Ford Credit. She was head of Ford Credit and she came to be global MD of Jaguar and I was UK MD. She was tough. And of course, a lot of the men didn't like the fact that she was tough and she had a bit of a temper, but she was a very caring, very hardworking woman. There was a lot of people that didn't like her or upset them. It was very interesting. Yeah, I went for one of my appraisals and as soon, soon as she asked me this question, I thought, God, how am I going to answer this? She said, there's something about you, Jeff. You say things to me that people don't think, yet you get away with it. I might shout a little bit now and again, but I listen to what you say and you keep coming back and your people keep coming back with ideas so what is it that's different you know with our relationship as opposed to some of the others and you think well how do you you do this you know and i said well look you're you're an american out of michigan or she's originally from pittsburgh and i said look there's times uh where we think what you say is not right and the way you deal with people is not right most of the times, you are really very, very good. But the most important thing that all of my directors will say is they know they know you will support them. I said you're a bit like the Seventh Cavalry of, of old. Uh, sometimes you go, you, you come over the hill before we ask you to. Sometimes you come over the hill and shoot everyone, including us. But you come over that hill. You come over the hill to support us. And if you do that, then we can forgive a lot of things. And therefore, we're not afraid to challenge the status quo and to make recommendations because we know at the end of the, at the end of the day, you will support us. You may tell us off in private, but you will support us. And so for me, it's that level of support you give people is what yeah. will drive them to then challenge the status quo. Yeah. So have you challenged the status quo uh, and took a personal risk that, um, that you learned from and you shared it with us? Because of the success of Jaguar Japan, I was on the fast track development uh, with Ford. <laughs> uh, so one of the Ford directors rang me and said, I'd like you to come on a, a two years secondment to Dearborn uh, to Detroit. Because of my personal circumstances, I didn't want to do that. So I said, no, it's just not the right time for me. And then they come back and asked another three or four months later. And I said, it's still not the right time for me. And it was, okay, if you don't want to come, you don't want to come. But you've got to realize that is going to hurt your future. You've not taken this. Uh, and one person even said, well, you know, you will never be a director 
as long as Ford owns Jaguar within finance, within finance at the time. And you think, oh, it is what it is. What, what, what can you do? But then uh, the guy that was chairman of Jaguar said, look, we've got an opening in the Jaguar headquarters in the US. I'd like you to do that job. I know your personal circumstances. Your wife doesn't really want to travel. I'm happy to have a chat with her and say, if you don't like it, I'll get you back in six months. Which I thought from him as a very powerful guy was, one, it would make me feel good. Uh, He thought enough of me that he would do that. But for someone, and this guy actually went on to run Ford worldwide, that he had that empathy himself. So I went to New Jersey, and then in year 2000, that was when Ford bought Volvo, Land Rover, Aston Martin, and they put them all together. That was a a $6 billion organization in the U.S., and they made me chief financial officer of that organization. So in three years, I went from you will not have a job to being CFO of one of the certainly more global and public divisions that they had. It taught me a bit about you take a risk, and I didn't want to look back and say, should I have not gone to America? I wish I'd gone to America. And it also taught me that a change in management somewhere can affect your career, good or bad, which was a lesson for the future. They moved us all to Southern California. So I went from Newport, South Wales <laughs> to Newport Beach, California, and their worlds apart. So I took the personal risk and I took a risk from a professional point of view as well, I would say. And you never came back in six months. Your wife was happy. Well, yeah, she uh, she didn't want to go to New Jersey, then she didn't want to go to California, and then she didn't want to come back to England. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's great. So, Jeff, um, you know, with all of these, um, you know, the competing needs and strategies that that uh, you get faced with, you know, literally month by month through an executive career, um, have there been any times where you've had to make a decision? that possibly went would have gone against your your very being you, you know that something just didn't seem to be right to you um has that ever happened and you know how how did you approach that yeah i, I think we, we all make decisions that in hindsight seem wonderful whether they went right or not so good or wrong i think there's very few uh, i don't know in, in my experience you know, there's right and there's wrong, but most are, you know, t- towards the middle. Could you have done better with something? And for me, it was a much as much about actually two real things that's ingrained in me is that when you got to, when you decide what you're going to do, you've got to act with decisiveness and speed. But before you act with decisiveness and speed, you actually need to prioritize what you're going to do. Because lots of people say, I got these 20 objectives I'm going to do this week or this month or this year. So, well, good, good for you. I work on five. And then when I've done those fives, I'll work on an- another five unless I've got enough really good people that means together we can accomplish them. I think it's more, could I have done better in a certain way? Could I have sold something better in a certain way? But also there's three skills I call the streetwise skills that I learned in a very harsh way. And that is one, uh, as particularly in a big corporation, you know, you need to be politically astute because it doesn't matter how good your job you're doing, you uh, have integrity, you can be credible, you can challenge the status quo, you absolutely deliver your results. But you need, in my opinion, be politically astute to manage perceptions and to deal with conflict. 
They're the three things. And I'll tell you a story in a minute. I was almost sacked by one of the most powerful men in Ford and how that brought all this together. Say within a board, who are the most influential people on that board? What makes them tick? What's their hot topics? As MD of Jaguar, I must have been measured on 25 different metrics. But what was the two or three that the CEO would ring me on every day? And it was sales. It was sales and then profit. So who are the, what's their hot points? Who are the key influencers? If there's a row between sales and marketing and engineering or manufacturing, who, who wins? Who generally wins? So who are the key influencers that you will need to get on your side? Even if it's the best idea in the world, you need influencers on your side. Uh, the other one then was managing perception. Because we all see in today's world, it's even more important. Uh, when I was in the US, they thought, you know, the headquarters uh, up here in England thought that, you know, I'd gone native. I'd suddenly had a chip in my head and was talking American and become American. I was doing what I thought was best for my job, which was the best for success of Jaguar in the US. How you deal with conflict it goes back to my earlier thing about how you negotiate uh yourself but then is how you negotiate between different parties that are in com uh, that, that are in conflict i think with that you need to be robust and you need to have you know you're not going to win all the time you need to be resilient let me tell you a quick story that puts all all, all this together so i was a cfo north america for jaguar land rover most of the cars in the u.s uh 80 of the cars are on uh two-year leases so the car comes back to you and you've guaranteed the customer a price for the second-hand value. So if the second-hand value, when you put it through auction or sell it the second time, is a lot less, then you take a, a profit hit. And I thought that the market was going soft on the used car values. So I had a conversation with the global CFO of Jaguar Land Rover and his people and say, I think we need to put something in the forecast uh, for for this uh, i haven't got the detail yet i haven't got the data but trust me i'm in the market and what i see you need to it was a difficult time there for jaguar and land rover financially and it didn't happen and then the numbers started to come through and what my instinct was was right so i went back this was about four or five months later to the cfo we'd had conversations in between and i said look we've now got a profit issue Oh, well, uh, perhaps it's best that you ring, you know, the head of the division of Ford to tell him. So you want me to ring him and not you. You report to him. I don't. Uh, yeah, because you know more of the detail. So I, I, I rang him and I said, hi, I won't say the name. Uh, we got an issue. And he said, uh, what, what on? I said, uh, use car values. And he said, well, I heard about it four or five months ago, but there was nothing put in the forecast, so I assumed it was covered or it's gone away. I said, it's not covered and it's not gone away. And he said, how much is it? And I said, well, I haven't done all the numbers, roughly about $75 million. He said, sorry, I missed that. How much do you say? I said, $75 million. And then I heard these immortal words. He said to me, it's okay, Jeff, don't worry. The sun will still rise in the morning. It's whether you're here to see it or not. And I sat there and somehow I blurted out, I hope it's a long night then. But it was not a long night. 
and there was an investigation and it was down to a lack lack of communication between me and the UK. Now, on my side of it, I thought, I told you and told you you could have put something in. But then when I sat down and thought about me, I should have made more of it. I should have stamped my feet. I should have shouted louder. I should have gone back and back to them. I probably should have gone to the, the central finance in Detroit, which the UK would have hated. But I knew it was going to happen, and I relied on the UK that they'd taken account of it, and they hadn't. So, yes, I could blame them, but for me, it come back uh, that I should have done better myself. I should have been stronger. As it happened, that same person, two years later, supported me to be MD of the UK. Because for him, it wasn't just you. It was a lesson. You've done a great job. And I moved out of finance, which is what I wanted anyway. And I worked in the used car market in the US, which gave me great operational experience. And he, two, two and a half years later, backed me to become MD of Jaguar's home market. Whilst it seemed my whole world had fallen in, and I should have been better... Because of what I'd done in the past and the type of person I was, I had a lot of support and I didn't see that support. But a lot of that support was there that led to this person then actually being the main reason I was promoted. It just shows that you do. It's tough to challenge the status quo. It's tough to stand up to powerful people. But if you do it right, they may not agree with you, but they will respect you if you do it the right way. And then if it doesn't go your way, you've got to think, all right, let's just get on with my job and do the best I can and be the best I can. I think this has been a great uh, story to to end this episode, to begin the year 2021 by telling our listeners how important it is to be authentic, to be before all these titles, to be your own self and to come from an altruistic, uh, ethical point of view. Really, really thankful for you. Appreciate uh, you taking the time and being with us here today and Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And the same to you. Yes, thank you very much, Jeff. Indeed. Happy New Year. Garda and Martin, hope you enjoyed this episode. There is more information available at neocharismaticleadership.org. And if you would like to discuss coaching or training for yourself or your team, you can contact Garda and Martin through the website. We look forward to your participation next week. Until then, goodbye.